Welcome to the Wellspring, where the grace of God is bubbling up for you and for all people, wherever you are. The Wellspring Podcast is a digital ministry of Muhlenberg Lutheran Church, coming to you from the friendly city of Harrisonburg, Virginia, where we pray that this time together may truly be a wellspring of God's grace for all people who listen, equipping you with new ways to live out Christ's love. Welcome to the Wellspring. It's a place for grace and faith in life and you. Hello there. I'm Pastor Alex Zuber. I use he, him pronouns, and I serve as the associate pastor of Muhlenberg Lutheran Church, overseeing youth, campus, and young adult ministry. It's so good for us to be together. This is episode number three, titled Away in the Wilderness, discussing chapters three and four of the book Trauma Stewardship, An Everyday Guide to Caring for Self While Caring for Others, by Laura Vandernoot Lipsky. Our guest host is Christy Trumbo a licensed professional counselor who brings her perspective to the process of mapping our response to trauma exposure. Christy's clinical perspective helps us get into the meat of this book. After we've recognized that caregivers can be recipients of secondary trauma, Christy helps us walk through the 16 warning signs of trauma exposure response. It's easy to feel lost in the wilderness of trauma, but there are indeed landmarks that may look familiar and help us find our way in the wilderness. Concluding with a reflection on Luke 4, 1 through 15, we look at a time where Jesus navigated the wilderness himself and find that often the way forward is not always the easy way, but it is the faithful way. But the hope we find in this is that Jesus has navigated this wilderness and walks with each of us wherever we're walking. Once again, welcome to the Wellspring Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, Delighted today to welcome our guest for this episode, covering part two, Mapping Your Response to Trauma Exposure, covering chapter three, What is Trauma Exposure Response, and chapter four, The 16 Warning Signs of Trauma Exposure Response. Today, our guest host is Christy Trumbo. And uh, Christy, I'm so glad to be able to have a conversation with you and uh, to to hear from your experience. If you'd like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about uh, why did I invite you to be on this part of uh, of the podcast in particular. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's an honor to be here. And I am a licensed professional counselor currently working at a nonprofit agency in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and working with a team of people who understand trauma and trauma responses. I've been licensed for 13 years as, let's say, not a second career, but the final career. If I finally figured out where I needed to be, but it's an honor to sit with people and to hear their stories. And what ties in, and I know I'm jumping a little bit, but we all have trauma, mm-hmm. and we we are always not sure where it showed up. And the DSM-5, Diagnostic and Statistics Manual for Mental Health, really changed the definition of PTSD and trauma so that it's not just how it was originally written for those coming back for more who had seen lives taken right in front of them. It is what our world is doing, how it has changed, and how we connect with people. And sometimes just the words that come out of somebody else's mouth can devastate us. So I think that's where we're starting to see all of this come together. 
I really appreciate that that perspective because you bring uh, the clinical perspective to a lot of these things, which I think as as I began to look at uh, this section in particular about how do we map our trauma exposure response to me in my own personal experience with therapy and uh, working with counselors, it has been uh, it has felt like a process in uh, emotional and social cartography. It's yes. been about mapping my responses to things and say, you know, I found my myself in this situation. I have no clue how I got here. And and I'm working with the counselors that, well, let's look at the path you took. Let's let's figure out what were the things that came up along the way and why did you do that? And so um, I know as I read this section, I was looking to say what kind of experience can we bring uh, to this that I think would benefit the folks that are reading this book and hearing about these different aspects of trauma exposure response. This the clinical background that you bring, this understanding of the DSM and all these different, um, all these different ways of being diagnosed with the real pains that can that can happen, uh, not just in our psyche but in our physical health as well. I uh, appreciate that perspective. I think that's going to be a, a big help to us, uh, especially you know loving the New Yorker cartoons that are in here. Uh, the the cartoon that is there uh, right at the beginning of chapter four um, is. A man drowning in the water with the dog on the on the beach, and it says, "Lassie, get help!" And the next panel has Lassie sitting uh, with a with a counselor. And uh, so, you know, this seems to be on uh, on our author's mind as well, as saying, "Hey, a place to get help." Um, while not helpful for the drowning man, uh, maybe helpful for you yes. in the different ways that we're drowning with trauma. And, and I don't think it's getting too far ahead. And, and uh, with when we talk about uh, trauma, because from the introduction we've been talking about this, we we are all traumatized. Mm-hmm. Um, we are all bearing that with us. And so uh, thank you for, for bringing your, your perspective and your expertise to this uh, as we get into part two of mapping our trauma exposure response. Um, I'd like to take a look just at these chapters. Uh, we're going to, well, we can walk through it together um, and talk about what we found here um, and what is, uh, and maybe add some more depth for our, for our readers. Um, but we get into chapter three first, which is just what is trauma exposure response, this idea of what's been set up here in the first few chapters um, of, of our book when we're talking about what trauma stewardship is. Um, now we're getting into trauma exposure response. And on page 42, she defines this uh, as saying a trauma exposure response has occurred when external trauma becomes internal reality. What does an internal reality like that look like for you and your experience? What kind of things, uh, how have you seen um, the the external trauma become internal reality for folks? It's a belief system. It's a belief system all its own that myself or others take on. It's how we process. And then in the processing, we add our individuality toward it. Could have, should have, would have come up. I, if they would have, if they could have, if they or they should have. But then it's also projecting. So when we project of everything that we think someone else might have done, we then are yelling and screaming about what we ourselves are doing. And so that piece of it ties in and becomes our reality. It's hard. It's hard to keep them separate. Separate. For a clinician, the language is transference and counter-transference. And if we struggle with keeping that in check, we then have crossed a line. We've missed a boundary. Mm. However, 
the catch for that for clinicians is consultation and supervision. We go talk about it. We bring it up with our colleagues to say, I'm struggling with this that I learned about a client. We can bring it back. And then so we know where we are authentically. I appreciate that point about the uh, sense of identity and the way and, and that that sense of self because what you're discussing there is this weird balance of things that are both grounded intimately in the reality of what is happening, but it's also creating all these different alternate realities, and and that affects our sense of um, of self. I think, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of these, you know, you talk about the way that we are imagining scenarios out and imagining realities that that have not happened, mm-hmm. um, and and that that kind of slippery slope of I think goes back to this sense of of unknowing, of being lost, if wandering in the wilderness uh, to a degree, because uh, we uh, we need to map our way out, we need to understand what's going on, and I think that's particularly hard as she's lifting up here in the book for helpers yes for people who identify as a helper to to get help i mean with you know poor lassie there had had uh, was able to get help but maybe not in the right way um but we we can struggle to get help when our identity is is so bound in this because she also says in here we often assume that our very status as helpers grants us immunity from the suffering we witness we are often wrong mm-hmm. and I think that that's the nature of being open-hearted is you have a capacity to then be wounded by the work you do. Um, what is what is that kind of thing like being someone that is in, in a helping profession, both personally and clinically speaking, that, that sense of self that's lost uh, in a response to trauma? And it's... I don't, the term gets used too many times, it's normal. Mm. However, it doesn't feel normal. I want to jump back to your words real quick, Alex, about being lost in the wilderness. As we say many, many times in our counseling sessions of the biggest struggle we have is the unknown. Mm. That's where fear and anger and many of these 16 trauma response, exposure responses come from is the unknown. Where did we pick this up? Where did we look at it differently? Where did we feel? So we want to keep feeling. We want to keep being present with our client. We want to understand. However, sometimes it hits a little close Mm. and that's hard to shake. And then as we leave the space, being able to take a moment and jot down a note or be able to catch it. But it doesn't always happen that way. Alex, I didn't share with you, the first time I learned about this book was four years ago mm-hmm. through um, an agency called Nurse Family Partnership. That's where there she's quoted in here, someone from the Nurse Family Partnership. <laughs> and that's where I first learned about this. And these are nurses who go into homes for three years Mm. to sit with a mother who's getting ready to have a baby up until that child is three years old and what it's like to surround them with all good and positive reinforcements and everything they need. Those nurses take that home with them every day. They're going into those homes. That's where I first learned about all of the trauma stewardship book and 
where we get triggered. The unknown is we don't always know which piece of information we've heard or seen sits and finds a deep space within us in our core that just festers or grows or needs nurturing or needs attention before we can move past it. I, you know, I found, you know, in my own my own experience of, of going to counseling, those have been some of the most beneficial times for me where I can walk in and say, where did this come from? Like that that thing that hurt me or that thing that really upset me or, or elicited this response, I have no clue where that came from. And so the journey there of, of mapping it out became really, really important yes. and really, really helpful for me to understand why did I get so incredibly overwhelmed uh, by that? Why did I get so angry um, when when XYZ happened? Because it is really important to, to map it out and get to the root of it. But it is also not easy. No, um, not easy at all. Because, you know, there's a sense of getting over yourself a little bit, mm-hmm. yeah, which feels like tough love. Get over yourself. But it's the reality of this kind of internal work because we are putting those barriers up for ourselves, I think, as a means of protecting yes. ourselves. But we've also got to get over that to to be vulnerable enough to, to have this kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. It is. I'm, I'm really struggling to not jump up ahead into chapter four. <laughs> yeah. But what I, what I want to affirm there is... That little piece that affects us may be a very, very long time ago. Mm. And so we don't know. It could be somebody's home that burned down. It could be watching a car accident. And then when we have to meet someone else down the road and they say, yeah, I just had a car accident, so I'm late for school. I just had a car accident, I'm just late for work. And we get triggered, and there are things that we respond to differently, and not necessarily always as a caregiver. But as a mapping response, we have to be able to open up ourselves to be able to say, uh-huh. Yeah, to know the landmarks. I All think, of you know, them. We're, if we're mapping here, I like I like this this mapping image. We can keep running with that one because yeah, that's, there's there's landmarks along the way. We get into those in the next chapter with these sixteen uh, warning signs. But these are the, the the landmarks that can help us find our way, and yes. and they're 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 very individualized. They're very personal. Um, but yeah, I completely agree. Where, where you say, okay, this thing that I know is part of your story. Um, and, and I think that's why it's also I appreciate the work that you do because sometimes I can't see that for myself and I mm-hmm. need that outside perspective, that person who's been listening mm-hmm. and observing and caring to, uh, to say, ooh, you mentioned a car accident and, and I, I know you told me before that that happened when you were younger. Do you think that that could be a connection here? Because there's other people that are going to be far more equipped to help us mm-hmm. connect the dots. She talks about in the introduction that you have everything you need to do this work. And I appreciate that affirmation. Yes. But you also need others at times because we can we can be really uh, obstructed or blinded to the things that um, can help us find our way. And that's so much of what I appreciate about the work of an LPC is helping to connect those dots and asking a question, do you think this is connected? Because sometimes the answer is no. 
I, I don't think that one actually is connected. I think this is something different. Exactly. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. But that that that's the cartography that that is so important there that I that I think you know you do in this kind of work is to help us help us map that route. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, we're going to get into landmarks in the next chapter. Um, but in this one, I think the other we we were talking before that one of the. Um, the critical sense is, is the is the self and getting out of your own way to get into this. And, and she gets into this on page 44 uh, and, and into page 45 um, of the book where she says, Many caregivers, uh, sorry, acknowledging a trauma exposure response can be difficult for any number of reasons. She says, Many caregivers feel guilty for struggling with their work because they tell themselves, Who are they to complain about their lives? Um, and there's this great line in here that that uh, you pointed out to me before uh, that I never wanted to give my afflictions any credibility by acknowledging their impact on my life as that would distract and detract from those who truly suffered. Can you say something about, you know, the misery Olympics that people are playing often of feeling like, well, my my suffering isn't this bad. Mm -hmm. It's not it's not these other people that I'm helping. So therefore, I'm unaffected. Well, and I think the other part of that, Alex, is I'm a licensed professional counselor as my profession. However, it spills over into my life as well and how I see things and how I respond or not, you know, be truthful and honest. However, we also meet those people who need to talk everything through and the one upping is what it seems like, but it's not. It's that connection. It's that all resonation. It's that recognition of, oh my gosh, I have something that I can relate to because that's what I felt. And so when she says, excuse me, when she says that we're struggling and we have to hold back, we're still human. We are still part of a process. And when it becomes an Olympics is when we need to be saying, okay, I don't need to be in six events. <laughs> I have one event to be in. Yeah. And that one event is me and the client and I, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you. I welcome God into my space every day, seven times a day. That's between me and God, where it can hold me. And I know we're going to get into that a little bit later as well. Yeah. However, we aren't, we don't have a shield of armor on, nor do we want to wear one that will keep us protected and safe and healthy and never have any issues. We are human that means we have feelings and emotions that pull on us, that tug on us. And when we collaborate with other professionals to be able to say, okay, I need to talk because this is what I felt. I've been, I'm new to this position and with this agency and within the first week, I went straight to the director And I said, I need to talk because this, this, and this has happened to me today, and I'm not okay. And that was during the lunch break, so I had a few minutes more to be able to process it before I could go for the rest of my day. I don't always do that. I don't always recognize it. So it is, you know, we have to qualify for the Olympics. (laughs) (laughs) We don't need to qualify in seven or eight events. Yeah. We need to understand that what we're feeling 
isn't tragic. What we're feeling isn't going to stop us until we don't recognize it. Yeah. I, you know, I, I find in the, many of the conversations that I have, I, I, I use that phrase of the misery Olympics a lot of reminding people that I talk to in pastoral settings that life is not the misery Olympics. So like you might be qualifying in, in, in seven events and, and that's, I'm, I'm really sorry um, that that's happening because that's, it's just a reality, but you're, you're feeling this, this misery and this pain and this sadness and this, this grief and this guilt and this anger. We're going to again, I'm jumping ahead into the, the next section here, but you know, and then I, I see people who are really quick to dismiss it and mm-hmm. and want to say um, that my pain isn't valid. My pain over losing uh, my grandparent at 99 isn't valid because this person that I know lost their 17-year-old son. Yes. No, no. Both can be tragic. Yes. Both can be, can be challenging. There, it's never easy to lose someone... We love uh, this thing that you're experiencing at work might feel privileged and it might be privileged because you you have a job and you you have you have these resources, you have these opportunities that someone else doesn't have who's unemployed and trying to figure out how to feed three children. Yes, that's that's traumatic, too. But you're dealing with your own pain and let's not let's not distract. And I know we're going to get into talking about minimizing and distraction. Mm-hmm. And these are all related to this and I think it really is as she's lifting up in here such a tendency of the helper to do this because we say I want to help I want to be compassionate I I feel like I should be doing more and 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 I should be able to just get through this because I have faith or, or because of any number of reasons the answer is to say no sit with it Run the race you've qualified for here in in these in these Olympics. Yeah. Deal with the pain you're 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 feeling. Run that race. Figure out if you've meddled here in the misery Olympics, and and move on. And hey, yeah, the other part that really resonates with me right now, what you just said, Alex, is permission. I use that yeah. all the time in many different manner ways and. We have to give ourselves permission because we're not going to always get it from someone else. As children, we relied on permission from mom and dad or whatever, whoever the caregiver was at that time. I'm not going to limit to mom and dad. We are looking for permission from an employer, from our pastor. How often are we looking just for permission to feel? Yeah. I watched a video the other day, Alex, of a police officer literally crying and falling apart on the hood of a car. And all of his coworkers saying, we got you, man. Go ahead. Let it out. And so we often think that our law enforcement aren't caregivers. They are. They're human, too. They don't always like all the aspects of their job. And when they feel, the first thing people want to say is, oh, he's not tough enough or oh, she's not tough enough. And we run that risk of having expectations for certain caregivers of what they should or shouldn't feel or have happen. And that's where Laura really helps us all to go, this is 
expected. Mm. You are listening to traumatic events. You are seeing them, feel them, honor them, and then give yourself permission to not hold on. So we can give ourselves the permission. We sometimes need it from somebody else, and I've done that many times in a session. You hereby have permission to never hold on to that again. Here's the floor in the room. Drop it. Let it go. It'll stay right here. You never have to pick it up again. Yeah. If you need to death grip it right now with me, do so. Feel it. Yes. Hold on to that as much as it hurts right now, and we're going to figure out how to set it down. Yes. And we go to acknowledge that feeling. And and, and so, yeah, I appreciate what she gets into here of, of really doubling down on this argument that because you are a helper, because you are a person who cares, because you are a person of faith, because you're a person with all of these tools that you can that you can lean on, it does not make you immune to trauma. In fact, mm-hmm. it makes you far more susceptible to this and what a gift that is. Yes. You know, what a what a gift it is that I can walk open hearted through the world and have the capacity to be hurt. Because I'm willing to also have the capacity to love and care for others. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, she, she lifts up a beautiful line in here uh, of fear that we will open a door that we won't know how to shut, uh, which I, I have experienced that in clinical settings of they're like, oh, I don't want to go there. I don't want to open that door because I don't know if I'm going to be able to shut it. And sometimes we just need to open the door and walk through. Um, and I think that's her, her encouragement here. Is uh, is to say that we are with these these sixteen warning signs that she lifts up in chapter four. Uh, she concludes chapter three by saying, "People respond to trauma exposure in many ways that are not included in this book." So. These next 16 don't mean that we've got the full picture. Uh, This is just what her publisher gave her room to put in here. Um, But she's included the common experiences. She reminds us to remain curious, take deep breaths, and maintain a sense of humor as you consider how this information applies to you. Only by understanding the topography of the land that you are lost in can you begin to plot the wisest way out. So let's step into the wilderness here. Let's take a look at the landmarks that are around us in the wilderness. Chapter 4 really seems to be, uh, for me, the heartbeat of this book, mm-hmm. of lifting up the 16 warning signs of trauma exposure response. And it starts with a big one, feeling helpless and hopeless. Um, I think this is one of the, uh, and, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, this might have been what drove me, so I can only speak from my experience, but a feeling of helplessness and hopelessness, I feel, is what drives a lot of folks to uh, engage in a clinical setting for, for counseling and for care. Do you, do you experience that in your, in your work? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what we find is how... How to not feel is is a hurdle, is a really, really big hurdle. How to not feel hopeless or helpless because it is so, I'm sorry, I'm going back to a movie reference of James and the Giant Peach. Yeah. And here comes the rhino Mm -hmm. in the clouds. And it's the rhino that he's afraid of. And so that feeling of I can't do anything because that rhino is coming at me. And he's big and scary, and that's what hopelessness and helplessness feels like. It's big and it's scary. And with help, we can break it down. Help for the caregiver, help for the person who has suffered the trauma to begin with. 
Yeah, and I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of scenarios. She lifts up a few that are in here, but um, I think these kind of things can be big and small. We've got a case study uh, profile that's lifted up here from a professor of biology who talks about his work as an ecologist and working with species that were going extinct. And he was doing work actively watching them go extinct. And and the and the toll that that took on him mm-hmm. to watch that. And, and we lift up, uh, she lifts up some other aspects in here of, of care for creation, talking about doctors in different settings. I've seen this from my background in my undergraduate degree being public health education. I did a lot of work in uh, HIV and AIDS mm. um, intervention globally. And in and, and some of these big settings, when we're talking about extinction events and climate change and, the, and epidemics of various diseases, it's really easy to feel helpless and hopeless in the face of something that seems so enormous. Yes. But I I think, you know, from what you're saying there, I'm reminded that people can feel that in the face of much smaller events as well um, on a grand scale to, to say, you know, the loss of a loved one, uh, particularly the loss of, of someone suddenly and or violently, those kind of things of saying, I'm never going to be happy again. I, I'm feeling hopeless in the in the face of this. Um, this awareness of a way that a system that was once beloved has changed. There's a lot of different things that can leave us feeling hopeless and helpless, and and that um, and I appreciate that. That's the number one sign that's here for our response to trauma because it, trauma is pain. It is yes. pain, and there are many different things that can inflict that. So it's not just uh, the big thing. Tied to the big things is her next uh, mm-hmm. idea here uh, is a sense that one can never do enough. Um, and I, I love her New Yorker cartoon of a, one penguin flying while the others are saying, we just haven't been flapping them hard enough. Oh, how often. I've felt like a penguin. Just If I just flap my wings harder, yes, I'm going to get through this. Mm-hmm. Um what does that kind of that kind of sense look like uh, from from your perspective? Have you seen penguins trying to flap so hard they fly? I've seen dogs trying to fly. <laughs> it's it's amazing how often we as humans say I'm not doing enough. The question is who's measuring that? Yeah, and understanding that. We have an obligation to ourselves. And, you know, it goes back to the whole work ethic and everything else and what's expected of us in 40 hours or 80 hours or whatever. There is a limit to what we can offer each time we are experiencing something, sitting with someone, living our life that we... We have to say, I'm okay with this. This is what I'm going to give. This is how I'm going to give it. And that's me. And that's enough. I think I love that, that sense of, of, coming back to your language before, of permission giving, of of giving myself permission to be enough. 
Um, so you are enough, but some, you have enough that's around you that's convincing you that you're not. And the way she frames it here in this, in this section on a sense that one can never do enough is, is talking about the language of oppression, which I, I want to be wary of that. You're speaking from, from a, <laughs> a privileged perspective. I don't want to talk about you know myself as an oppressed uh, category of people uh, lightly. But she's lifting up points here of the way that there are larger societal factors, there's larger movements in our world today that may be part of what's making us feel like we're not enough, that we have these perpetual lies around Mm -hmm. us of you are not beautiful enough without this product, Uh, particularly as we're recording this around the holiday season. you You are not a good enough husband or wife or son or daughter or parent if you don't buy XYZ jewelry. Yep. There are so many things that are convincing us that we're not enough. And she is talking about this as being a larger framework of systematic oppression mm-hmm. um, and, and, and this, this scarcity mindset that mm-hmm. comes about it. So there is a radical act to the permission giving for self to be enough. Yes. And so I'm grateful for any kind of work that can come along and say, uh, and say you are you are enough, um, and, and you don't need to internalize these systems of oppression that are around you and asking for more, more, more. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not saying absolve yourself of all responsibility completely and you know don't go to work tomorrow. Maybe you do need to leave an unhealthy job if that's, re- if that's the reality of it, but let's be discerning about that. But but also you don't need to let your job kill you. Like where there's a balance that we're finding yes. in this of of enough, yes. um, because enough doesn't necessarily imply uh, too much, mm-hmm. and nor does it imply scarcity. And so there's a, there's a, that that is a middle ground rather than an extreme, mm-hmm. and I think that can be lost in a narrative of extremes. Yes, and remembering that advertisers are just doing that, and they don't get it right every time. They will misadvertise and have no idea of the population it's affecting. And then when somebody who's already feeling oppressed listens to an advertisement and it's the trigger, it's the thing that sets them, well, maybe I'm not. And then we start questioning. So it's believing in yourself to be able to say, wait, that's what they are doing. Doesn't mean that's what I have to do. That's hard. And a lot of times we need help with that. Yeah. And that is, I think, you know, being able to have that other voice in our life that's helping us ask those good critical questions. Because when we get caught up in the whirlwind and the gravity of some of these larger systems that are at play, it can be really easy to miss things and to have someone in our life that maybe just for that time, they're grounded enough to be able to ask the good question of us is such a gift. Um, Or help me understand. I heard this. I need to talk it out with someone. And they bring that other perspective and they are hearing what you're saying without it just being a rhetorical question. We We don't want to get lost in asking a question that we might not get the answer we're looking for. So how do we also navigate that to be able to communicate, to say, I am struggling. This does not make any sense to me. I need someone else's idea or thoughts because I'm taking it in a way that I'm going down a rabbit hole that I don't want to come out of. 
help me block that hole so I don't go down there. Yeah. Well, so the, the maybe a sort of an opposite, equal opposite reaction here to our not feeling like we've done enough is her next idea of hypervigilance. Oh. Uh, and that's, I mean, I think that is another, it's just as easy to fall into uh, into that. And she, she talks about um, this effect happening to people over time who are regularly bearing witness to other people's traumas. Having a trauma exposure uh, response can make us feel like we're always on, even during times where there's absolutely nothing that can or should be done. Uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, the ways that you will sometimes bring uh, the clinical practice into your own life, right. for better or for worse, I think, because there's times where you're, you might be asking yourself, why am I doing this? I don't mm-hmm. want to be oh, absolutely. analyzing right. here. And, um, you know, I, I will notice the same kind of thing uh, for me in, in conversations where I'm like, no, I'm allowed to not be... Pastor Alex today. I can, you know, I can just go to this JMU game and be Alex's sports fan. I still want to stay true to who I am as a as a person and be ethical and responsible and compassionate and all that jazz. But, you know, I don't have to be a pastor today. I can no. just be because going to a JMU game. That's <laughs> when it becomes Alex the fanatic. Not right. just <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I couldn't leave that one out. You know, I'll, just, I'll at least paint my face purple so I'm less recognizable well, when that happens. But. Well, and, and it's it is healthy to be able to say, uh-uh, no, I'm not wearing a counselor hat today. I'm not wearing the flea collar. Sorry, the, <laughs> the, the clerical collar. I'm not putting on um, gloves and a mask because I'm going to do something medical with someone. I can look at someone. Oh, and we have, I've met so many wonderful people um, through church and other places that have said, yeah, that's a question I'm not going to answer because I am not your doctor. Right. And the gift of setting that to be able to say, no, I'm going to get sucked in if I tell you too much. I'm not your care provider. I'm a friend who has the same knowledge, but knowing I can't give you that. And that's healthy. Yeah, and, and you know, you mentioned you mentioned not wearing the collar. Ironically, I'm not wearing my collar right now as we record this. Um, but for me, I, I get asked a lot, "Why do you wear your collar?" Um, for me, that is a it's a sign for myself of recognizing what hat, or in this case, what collar I'm wearing at the moment to say, "No, I'm I am not." living out my pastoral vocation right now, I am just going to the grocery store and I'm going to continue to try to be myself, but I'm not wearing my collar because that's not what I'm doing right now. Exactly. But when I show up to work, I, I am, I'm wearing yes. this. And, and, you know, and that, that's a distinction for me. If, am I going to go to this event wearing a collar or am I going to go wearing a polo? Um, am I, am I showing up in a long sleeve t-shirt? Sometimes it's cause it's just a, it's a youth event. We're going out, uh, mm-hmm. we're going out to, uh, an event out at you know Eagle Irie, but um, you know more often than not, for me, I love that physical sign of saying this is the hat I'm wearing right now. This mm-hmm. is the role because it is a, a means of stopping that hypervigilance. And so there are some, like, I think, with this kind of uh, effect, there are some physical things that people can do, where you know you can say this is my office, and mm-hmm. when I'm here, I'm I'm doing this kind of work. And unless this appointment is scheduled to be 
in another place, which I'm guessing is probably v- seldom happens. Mm-hmm. And you say, this is not my clinical setting. Right. This is my, this is my space. Mm-hmm. Now I can bring some of those gifts and that compassion to this other place. I can bring my faith yes. to another place without bringing my pastoral presence, without bringing my vocation of this. I can, you know, I can bring my knowledge of uh, of mental health and 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 the and transference and some of these to my relationships and to my family mm-hmm. without being their counselor, right? Um, because hypervigilance can be something that is just really letting us completely burn down. And a lot of times, the way hypervigilance shows up is stress, headaches, talking rapid speech. Changing. I mean, it almost looks ADHD yeah. because it becomes so, I don't know if it's excessive juggling or I have to move this tractor trailer size tire 10 feet or one inch, whatever it is, we all of a sudden really focus on, we lose sight of how we are not taking care of ourselves because it shows up differently mm. and it's not a new skill it is but it's not it's not it's not a needed skill hypervigilance isn't a needed skill at all times yeah uh, you know i was thinking that it, it, hypervigilance was an opposite to um the feeling like we're not doing enough, but I think that feeling like we're not doing enough might be a balance point between hypervigilance and hopelessness. Yeah. Oh. And I'm like, I'm going to stave off my hopelessness by overworking the problem. And if I am always on and I am always working and I am always helping, then I am not hopeless. Meanwhile, Meanwhile. it's balanced on this sense of I can never do enough, and so therefore I can never be off. I can never give myself that permission Mm -hmm. to rest and renew and and step back and look at where I am and how I'm hurting Um, because I always have to help. There's always more to do. And, and I love people who help, and I, and I see some people who have tremendous hearts who care so deeply for people and the needs of the community, and, and then there are absolutely moments where I, I, I want to look at them and say, please stop. Yes. Please rest. Yes. Please, yeah. please rest. Because, you know, I can see the ways this is hurting you. Mm-hmm. You're not seeing this for yourself, but your hypervigilance is ultimately self-defeating. Yes. And it comes from a place of, I, I, I think, of this... I can never possibly do enough. Mm-hmm. And and give yourself the permission for that to be mm-hmm. okay. And, and the clinical part, I have to, the clinical pieces of where I would encourage people and a, someone to bounce the thoughts off of or a loved one or a friend, whatever it is, it's not the why question. Why questions spin around in the air. It is being able to say, tell me more, okay? You've told me this part of it. You've told me how if you do this, this will work. Okay, now tell me what the next part is. And then we look back to be able to go, you've laid out 18 things that you have to do when we have one that is all that's necessary. Mm -hmm. So it's not a question of why do you do it. It's help me understand what you're putting in order. Then we can back it around to what is actually needed. Yeah, I appreciate that. That perspective is 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 important in helping us. But first things first, and yes. not trying to do yes. all the things at once. Yeah. 
Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, she gets into these next couple um, ideas that are here, and I think these next two are pretty r- intimately related to one another. There's this idea of diminished creativity mm-hmm. uh, that can go that, that can go on and be a sign of, of trauma and, and the way that we are the way that we are hurt. Um, I think that that can be a reflection of our hopelessness there is to is to not be as creative uh, as we were and to not feel like we've got that fertile ground for growth of ideas in our in our heart and soul. Um, But I think it goes hand in hand with her next idea of being uh, the inability to embrace complexity, Um, because creativity, I think, is is relishing and celebrating complexity and and when the world is black and white when you're only able to live within you know these very rigid dynamics because everything else is so overwhelming then i think those two are are often going to go hand in hand i will not argue with you a bit there that i agree yes so i mean have you do you see ways of being able to um Sorry, I'll um, think think this question through before I actually ask it. Um, You know, when we're talking about this from a sense of people who who want to help, uh, I think there really is a danger in a lack of complexity because the world is complex, Mm -hmm. and and ultimately we can end up hurting people and hurting ourselves by living in a in this sort of black and white yes and no. A B clear cut dichotomy of life. What are what are some of the ways that you've seen people kind of get stuck in in that thinking or, or um, in in a lack of complexity? How does that look for uh, for people? Well, as you just said, it looks very very different for everyone, and the lack of complexity means what we usually see is a giving up. That. I'm only going to, so it's the reverse of hypervigilance or being hyper-focused. It's, um, no, no, I, if I give so much and I give the details and I go to where it needs to be to embrace the complexity, learning about a new theory in counseling, learning about a new skill in nursing, Finding a new treatment for cancer and you work in the cancer ward. It's, oh, no, I don't want to learn that because that's one more thing I have to be aware of. And that's one more thing I might forget. And I can't go wrong with them. I can't do anything that I might harm them. And so not embracing the complexity is actually stifling their own growth, as you said. And so we see it differently. We see it with interests or or what they're doing outside of their work i don't want to get the new bike with or the electric bike you know i don't want to do that because then i might have too much interest over here and i'll forget why i'm doing the job i'm doing and then maybe i want to become a, a olympic competitor you know <laughs> in in marathons or Try it, whatever. Um, This is another one where it will surprise you. This is one where they don't see this coming. Mm. The complexity, the not wanting to engage and embrace complexity and not wanting to be creative are subtle enough, they'll get missed. 
Yeah. And and I think that it's it, it is a really easy one to miss, particularly some of the examples that she lifts up in here. You know, she talks about some very um uh very non uh non-confrontational issues, you know, terrorism and war and <laughs> and domestic violence and you know, yes. those kind of things where they are issues that require complexity. And she she lifts up in in this same section kind of a zero sum power system um that happened in the wake of the terrorist attacks. And I remember growing up in this uh this dynamic um of where there uh, there is a um, an element that's that's here of you're either with me or you're with the terrorists. That's the line that she uses here, and that came after a profound national trauma. Yes, it did, um, and I see. I remember all of the comments that were made off-handed, and. Because of the concerns and because of the fears and because of the unknown, when we don't look at the complexity, even now, Alex, the Gaza, yeah, what is Just happening there, if we don't talk about it, we're acting as though it doesn't happen. And that's a that's a trauma response. Yeah. We cannot imagine. Yes, we had our own terrorist attacks here. Mm -hmm. The continuous bombing, the continuous murdering of human life for no reason. And 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 yeah, I've seen I've seen that in the wake of the violence that was experienced in Israel, where where you know people see that violence and they're they're remembering the the violence that we've experienced in this country. We'll say, well, no, 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 this is clear cut. You're either pro-Israel or you are pro-terrorists and 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 say well no it's not that black and white it is a very complex dynamic like there's a long history of instability here that we need to we need to know and you know the the idea that i can still grieve the the tragedy that we've witnessed in this country while recognizing that terrorism doesn't come from a vacuum um, that 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 this that an act of lashing out like that doesn't happen without something um, causing it, and it's not to say that then the violence that follows is deserved. But there's so much complexity in that that when we are hurting, we are unwilling to wade into the waters of that. And I think you know I see so many more conversations that are happening now uh, in regard to American response to to 9/11 and our uh, and the war on terror that has ensued. Conversations that never would have happened in 2002 or 2003 because of how much we were still profoundly hurting. Yes. We're having these conversations in hindsight. And so, you know, when I when I was thinking about the reason for talking about this book being in the midst of the profound trauma that's happened all around us yes. with this pandemic, if to oh say we gosh. are all hurting, we are all witnesses to trauma, then we are going to be less willing to engage in the complex conversations that are needed so desperately mm-hmm. to right wrongs that are going here. You know, the, the George Floyd uh, shooting in, in Minneapolis and this the, the rise of this Black Lives Matter movement that happened in 2020, and there was a lot of really important conversations and a, little, a lot of really important forward progress that was happening, but so much of this was happening side by side with millions of people dying from this virus and so many people living traumatized and in fear. Mm-hmm. 
we weren't in an emotional space to have some of those conversations because of how much people were hurting. We're like, this country is getting so so divided. Yes, because out of a trauma response, we are becoming less complex. Yes, we're, we're, we are. We are. Have, we are unable to embrace complexity because we're hurting, and we're not acknowledging it. Mm-hmm. And that is that is really shaping the dynamic of a lot of these conversations. And that's that's been, you know, I, I think I'm sure you've seen this in your work. I've had this kind of conversation with colleagues of mine, of people are struggling to engage in nuanced conversation. And that's you know, reading this, that was a mind blowing moment for me as I read this section. I'm like. This is a trauma response. Yes. We're hurting and we can't do mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. We can't do this. And I think that hands off <clears throat> perfectly to the next section here, which is minimizing. Yes. And, and, and as I said before we start recording, we can just, we don't have to talk about this one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, that's, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's right there. We're minimizing an issue. It's, it's clear cut. It's black and white. You're either pro-American or you're, or you're uh, pro-terrorist. Mm-hmm. There's no other way. That is minimizing a conflict in a profound way. And for caregivers and for the people who are on the front lines who experience the trauma in other ways and vicariously and secondhand um, what we ourselves catch ourselves doing is minimizing what's happening because we're also recognizing who can and can't talk about it. So we minimize to make the session and less traumatic. Then we forget and we keep doing it when the next person may not or the next day. So we, whatever we feel and we take on, we have to be able to catch, and that's with the help of others. Yeah. Well, we talk about this. This is a lot. A lot of the, what we've talked about now is is involving our thinking. It's involving the way that we process and respond uh, in our in our vocational response. The next warning sign that she lifts up here is chronic exhaustion and physical ailments. And, you know, there's a, there was another book that we referenced in our conversation before we recorded about um, the, uh, the body keeps score. Is, yes. that, is that right? Yes. Can you tell us about this, this kind of phenomenon? Because, you know, uh, it goes beyond the mental. It here. is. And, and our psychological and physical being is together. We can't separate them out. And so... Even the amount of mental work we do takes a toll on our bodies. And stress literally can kill you because the stress and anxiety is going to mess with your central nervous system. And we are going to, at some point, not be able to do any more. It is not uncommon to get to the end of your work week and your colleagues say, I'm done. I cannot do anymore. I just want to go take a nap. Mm-hmm. And that is recognizable. That's it's being verbalized. What isn't being verbalized a lot of times with chronic exhaustion and physical ailments is you start calling out. And you know, I need to take, or all of a sudden, you okay, I'm going to take a three-day vacation next week. Then it goes back to a lot of the other same uh, warning signs. Yeah. Now there's a difference there between I am going to take a a day to care for my health, or I'm going to oh. be intentional about taking this three day weekend to care for myself, and 
I am so overwhelmed that I physically can't come into work today, and I don't know why. Yes. This is so frustrating. Yes. I just need to keep pushing through. Um, and, and, and so there's that is, yeah, I don't oh, want to no, shame no, anyone out of the, out of the healthy not. vacation. Right. Because we'll get to that later. Yeah, right. <laughs> You're going to get to that later with another guest of talking about self-care yeah. and talking about healing and talking about how there are many effective ways to keep us going in these professions, not having as many trauma responses, and being able to embrace the the growth and being able to embrace, embrace what can help us, not only what is is locking us and shutting us down. Yeah. It's um, these the physical. The physical is a is a real big factor because um, you know we can. And I think one of the one of the clear examples of that uh, is you know someone looks at pictures of a president uh, when they start their term and when they finish their term, and you can see how rapidly someone in a high stress job like that ages, and it, and it does. It it really it does physically affect our our health and that is something uh not to be diminished or missed at all in Mm -hmm. in this conversation Uh, the next warning sign is the inability to listen or deliberate avoidance um and i know avoidance tendencies are are a big thing but the the inability to uh, to listen here. This, I think, also paired with her next idea of dissociative moments. Yes. Um, can you say more about, about this section and, um, and and what this can kind of look like for somebody? I, where I have seen this happen is when the inability to listen directly affects. And then when you're half hearing, the response you give can be totally inappropriate can be harmful and so deliberate avoidance is you're checking out and you don't want to face any of it or you're finding you're finding that the normal day-to-day structure is off and it's not working so therefore you're not engaged with it and so um you know, it also goes to the personal life there as well. Um, I'm, I'm trying to pull my thoughts together for the disassociative moments and how we take it one step further when we don't need to. Checking out, not really being there, um, noticing experiences, avoiding isolation, seeking out support is what we should be doing, but it we this these are two we can't catch quickly. They're going to come on slow and they're going to gradually get worse. Yeah. They're going to keep building. Yeah, and she describes them as being intrusive or overwhelming. Yes. So, so this isn't about um 
you know, I'm going to go turn my mind off for a minute and just watch a silly show that makes me happy. Um, you know, this this kind of thing happens without volition, um, and it and and it builds. I think that that is an important thing to to recognize in there because there is a big difference between between saying. I need a minute for myself. I need I need to just go kind of collect my thoughts, or I need a minute to go just dissociate. Yes, yeah, I've heard people say that, and I don't think that's inherently unhealthy because it's there's there is volition in that. It's it's where you know the the example that she used in the introduction of this book of the cliffside moment of mm. how many people do you think have have died jumping off of this cliff? That's an intrusive. Thought that's an intrusive moment. You have just dissociated from the beautiful reality you're in with your family mm-hmm. to to have that experience there, and and that was not something of your own volition, right? Um, and and so I, I think that can be um, one of the things that people can can look for in their own experiences there of say, you know, I have these times where I just become overwhelmed and my mind just turns off, or I'm flashing back to another time where I'm re-experiencing this trauma, that is Mm -hmm. when we're we're branching into a warning sign of trauma exposure response versus I'm deliberately stepping away to take uh, take care of myself. Yes, and as I said, these are the ones that are going to sneak up on you. They're going to um, grab you. And by then, it's already been happening for a while. So, yeah, I'm, I'm jumping ahead of you, just the sense of persecution. Yeah, yeah. That because these have been happening, what's going on, it's not being talked about, it's not being addressed. These characteristics are building. Bam. Yeah. We have, now we have a bigger situation for the helper. And she she lifts that up as to say feeling persecuted speaks to a feeling of profound lack of efficacy in one's life. That's her opening remark here is to say that this is again not happening by our own volition. This is yes. this is this snowball of of helplessness in mm-hmm. a situation that's making us say I am being persecuted, or as she describes it here, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mistreatment can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Of, yep. Everyone's out to get me. I've had this, this, and this bad experience, and now everyone is uh, every everyone is against me. And and you know my my job could not possibly get any worse because everyone is out there just to tear down my my job and make me feel like dirt. Well, maybe. But maybe not. Exactly. And, and maybe that this, this spiral of thought is something that you, you need some help stepping in and breaking. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to, because you're, you're beginning to weave a new reality for yourself that isn't grounded in what we're experiencing here and now. Uh, and that can be dangerous. Again, that feeling lost in the wilderness. Yes. We're, when we're creating surroundings for ourselves that aren't there, there are enough roadblocks that we don't need to manufacture them exactly. for ourselves. And this is where... You know, if we're counting, I don't even know where we are in the count. And we're counting and we're bringing out these 16 that she has chosen. Again, she gives us clear direction that these are not all of them. But here are 16 very important responses that we need to be aware of. Yeah, and very common. Uh, yes. You know, you were talking about what's normal. Yes. These are, it's, this is a very normal 
set of abnormality. And exactly. so, you know, the, and, and I, I started feeling that as I was getting into this section of I'm being attacked here because she's naming too much of what I've experienced in, in my own life and a lot of too much of what I've, you know, I've had to go unpack in, in, in my own therapy. Like that has been really helpful, but I'm like, I, man, <laughs> that's me. Stop. And it gets, it, it's, it's going to be frustrating. And the harder part, Alex, is when someone that we, <clears throat> a colleague, is saying, well, I'm glad that never affects me. I would never let that happen. There's a bigger sign. Oh, I'm fine. Nothing bothers me. Mm-hmm. No, I will have, I'll be able to handle it when it comes. No. Yeah. No. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things I always try to, to lift up in, in preaching and in teaching and in, in, in pastoral care conversations and working with others is that it's okay to be vulnerable. Yes. I'm more than happy to be vulnerable in that. But again, there's volition in that. It's, you know, what we're talking, when, when it becomes a problem is when my vulnerability is not of my own making. When I can't help but sit there and be broken open for the world to see, that's when I'm not handling things things well. That's when I'm hurting and I'm traumatized, and mm-hmm. and that happens. And sometimes there's nothing. It's not to say there's anything wrong with that, but that's a time when we say we need to get help. Mm-hmm. We need support in this in in, in helping to piece ourselves back together mm-hmm. uh, because we're we're hurting out in the open uh, rather than by our own our own volition sharing from our vulnerability. Abilities, um, and you know a lot. This is I thought it was well timed as I was like getting into this section again. I'm feeling way too seen, and then she lifts up guilt, Mm-mm. and because as I'm I'm naming all these things, I'm like I am failing as a person for the ways that I have resonated with so much of what has come before in this chapter. Now it gets to guilt, and this you know the the experience of uh, of trauma exposure. Um, and a way of responding is to feel guilty about mm-hmm. the way that we're experiencing life. Mm-hmm. Um, what what is fundamentally wrong with with guilt? From or, or I don't say fundamentally wrong. I don't know if that's the right word. But where do you see guilt as being dangerous or problematic for for someone? It's taking on a life of its own that is are projecting. I have to feel guilty because someone else, it's much worse. They have it much worse. Mm. I, I've got to feel guilty for anything I'm doing. So it's taking our lives out of normalcy and creating something else that doesn't need to be created. We can feel however we need to feel. Understanding why we're feeling it is key. Understanding the reason we need to give life and breath and air to guilt is because maybe we're questioning how we went about something. Maybe it's I maybe it's a sense of <clears throat> I'm realizing how privileged I am. You don't have to feel guilty about what you're privileged with. It's what you do with that privilege. And that's where those for many, that line gets blurred of what guilt is. If I may, for a quick moment, the birth of my child, I felt very guilty that it wasn't worse, wasn't more complicated, because I had lost the twin. 
where it came later was no, I didn't need to feel guilty for the actual birth defects. What was going to come later with a divorce was even bigger mm-hmm. than anything I saw with the birth of my child. I could have handled more. I could have done this. Well, handling the divorce wasn't easy. Yeah. So that moment of guilt and then having somebody, I didn't go through that by myself, Alex. Yeah. A lot of pastors here at Muhlenberg helped me through that. What we know to be true is we can blame shame and guilt ourselves. However, it's not a benefit. There is no benefit in guilting yourself into feeling a specific way that you're shaming yourself. Because there's no room for either one of those. We have to understand the reason we are making those choices. And then, where, what do we do with it? And that, and that sense of what do we do with this. And, and I think, you know, from a perspective of someone of faith to say, what do we let God do with this? Uh, because I, I get that. I, I get that uh, question a lot when I talk to people about, well, why do we have to start every worship service with confession? Mm-hmm. Like, am I that bad? <laughs> well, you know, I would say, all right, start, don't read Luther because he would say, yeah, you are that bad. You're the worst. And, and that's, I mean, that's, I mean, this wretched sinner that I am. I mean, Luther was, Luther was unapologetic about feeling guilt, but he was also unapologetic about laying guilt down at the foot of the cross yes. and, and letting. Let, it's it's a little of a cliche phrase of the letting go and letting God. Yeah. Um, but you know, saying I am gonna, I I can feel this, I can acknowledge this, I can see the ways that this would immobilize me, but I'm laying my guilt down here, and I'm gonna walk in freedom, mm-hmm. um, and I'm gonna walk in newness of life, and and to say that this is what grace does. This is the way that grace transforms. Is it gives me a place to lay down guilt and shame. And to walk on a new way. Because if we don't and we continue to carry this, then I think it leads us into the next warning signs here, which is that of fear. Um, And then anger and cynicism, which go hand in hand. Uh, As a big Star Wars fan, Yoda says fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, She actually does quote that. Yes, uh, In here, The Phantom Menace. Uh, Again, I'm, you know, listening to this book on audiobook while mowing my yard. I'm fist pumping in my neighborhood because she's uh, she's quoting The Phantom Menace when talking about fear. But it is, it is this, it is this very clear cut pathway. I think guilt Mm -hmm. can be something that when we don't let it go can transform there immediately into fear. And where, where I want to jump in here is there's this piece of trust. I don't trust myself. I don't mm. trust the system. I don't trust God. I don't trust my neighbor. I don't trust my spouse. I don't trust my friend. I don't trust myself. And then it just makes all of this more complex. Because fear, yes, I want you to have fear. Because it helps you find what needs to be sifted through and what needs to be held and what needs to be molded and what needs to be shaped. So fear, okay, but too much is what we're talking about. We're talking about where it gets to be too much. Anger and cynicism, yes, be angry. Know what you're angry about. If you're angry for no reason, and I mentioned to you earlier, fear and anger I had to realize that and go, whoa, okay, this is a warning sign for me. I've got a little too much fear 
of things I don't have any control or any business needing to fear. And then I'm angry at all the little things. That's when I had to go back to figure out where my trauma response was. Because anger showed up very ugly. And it and the cynicism and the <clears throat> rudeness. I found myself having rudeness and I didn't like it. Mm. And that's when you get a look from somebody, you make a comment and somebody just looks at you almost like you just did to me. Yeah. It's that look of, I can't believe that just came out of your mouth. Yep. And what is happening here? Because someone else will see it and feel it when it's so uncharacteristic of us. And that's not to look at them and go, what's your problem? That's the time to look at them and go, okay, Alex, I did not understand that face. Help yeah. me understand the face you just made for right. what I said. And so there are ways to be able to bring that back around and sort through it. Yeah. I really appreciate what you said there about, you know, don't, I don't trust myself. I don't trust my neighbor. I don't trust God. I don't trust that because, oh my gosh, that sounds like so many conversations that I have heard either in the, over the last few years, uh, the, the trauma that we've in the midst of the trauma we've experienced, when people looking around at the brokenness in our in our country, in our political systems, in our ability to have conversations in within our communities, we're saying, you know, I don't understand what's wrong. I don't understand what's changed. But you know what? I don't trust this. I don't trust this. I don't trust this. You know, I don't I don't trust this doctor. Um, I, I'm I don't trust you know this vaccine. I don't trust this. I don't trust. And, and that lack of trust. Is this is that is the fear that then turns to anger and act in action running amok, and it becomes really really problematic. And, and I hear so often people talk about everyone seems angry and cynical, and that's casting a wide net. And I know sure. not everybody's angry sure. and cynical, but you know it can feel like that. Mm-hmm. It can, that, that that hopelessness that we let off this chapter, mm-hmm. talking about of saying I feel like everyone is angry and cynical, um, and and it's it does come back to that lack of trust. Mm-hmm. That is so hard. And as we do that, Alex, you and I both know the two things people do not want to admit are what they fear and how angry they are. Mm. Because already, what right do I have? Or the reason they're so angry is this big to them. You know, it's deep. The anger goes deep for what they've experienced, yet that isn't coming across. It's looking like everything now when we have to find a way to get to those lower surfaces. That's where we can work through it, and that's where we can name it, and that's where we can help them take ownership of only the piece they need to because it's much smaller. Hmm. I appreciate that. Yeah, fear and anger are... Are healthy emotions, but too much of them can be can be really problematic. And I think you know Luther offering his explanation of each of the Ten Commandments in the Small Catechism begins each explanation of a commandment by saying, "We are to fear and love God." And I and I every time I teach confirmation, confirmation kids get hung up on we fear God. Mm-hmm. See, yeah, I'm like have you have you stood on top of a mountain? And had your breath taken away. As you stand there on an edge and you feel really, really high up and like, uh, I, this could all fall apart in an instant if I'm not careful. I feel like, but it's also breathtaking and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and I love this. I feel like that's the balance 
of fear and love, but it's fear balanced with love. Yes. That we live in, in awestruck wonder of, of our God. And, and, and to say that, yeah, there is a role for fear in our relationship with, uh, with God. And, and because fear isn't a problematic emotion, uh, but it can be mm-hmm. if we let it run. When they become a trauma response. Yeah. That's when trauma exposure re- response. That's when we run into the the blockage. Yeah. So rolling right out of that, that sense of uh, of, of the anger and the frustrations and the uh, the ways that this can manifest, I see this so much uh, come up. In, in forms of walls that people put up in unhealthy ways yes. um, between themselves and, and reality. And there's the next two warning signs, I think, go hand in hand with that, uh, and they go hand in hand with each other. Uh, one is the inability to empathize slash numbing. Mm-hmm. And I think another tool of numbing is the next one, which is addictions. Yes. And so turning to substances, uh, turning to sort of foreign things to then be the agent of of healing, uh, you know, in big air quotes here because yes, this is a podcast big. and people can't see that because it's not healing. It is a way of distracting in a really devastating way. And, and I, I absolutely love and adore frontline healthcare workers who work in trauma bays and ERs. Uh, but I remember when I was working as a trauma chaplain in a trauma bay in West Philadelphia. Mm. The, you know, when I was working in the, in the, doing rotations by day in the hospital, nurses and doctors on the regular floors of the hospital would make some dark humor jokes, and then they would notice that the chaplain walked by, and they'd they'd get bashful about it. The the ER trauma nurses, trauma surgeons, they did not care. The 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 dark humor was up. That was a wall that kept them from feeling the enormity of what they were experiencing, as they were literally holding. The fragility of life in their hands. Oh my hands. gosh! Yes, yes. But then I also noticed that as a problem. I mean, they were hilarious. Like I and and it was. I had to make it really clear to them quickly. I'm like, your jokes aren't offending me. I, I think y'all are funny, and I understand what this is. Mm-hmm. But then you know, I remember a time when a man came in who had fallen on train tracks, and when they got him in, they recognized that his that he was on drugs and his BAC was really high, and when they saw substances, they wrote him off, mm-hmm. and. As I followed up with him, I realized that, you know, he was talking about hearing voices. And I recognized that from our conversation that he was hearing voices before he fell on the tracks. Um, That it wasn't about him drinking. And it wasn't about the drugs that he was using. But he'd been hearing voices before that. And I was able to go back to the doctors and advocate for him. And they were able to get a psych consult and they were getting him transferred over to an inpatient um, a psychiatric evaluation at the at the main hospital mm-hmm. and so the 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 numbing that happened was really detrimental to this patient had there not been someone else like like me there yes because the inability to empathize with someone when they saw well this you made a choice to do these to do these drugs and you decided to fall and you're fine you just sit there and sober up and then we're going to kick you right back out on the street that was really really dangerous to this man who was in a mental health crisis uh, at the time 
And so there's a lot of these caring professions where that, that same kind of numbing with things like, like humor or distancing from, you know, choose choice pains that people would take on will then transfer over for addictions for themselves. And there can be such a hand-in-hand correlation with that. Yeah. Um, that, what kind of things have you seen in, in All of that. Those? Everything you've just talked about, I've seen and I've worked with in, in different settings in my career. And what happens many times is that one glass of wine mm-hmm. on Friday night because I'm off for the weekend, which is then more on Saturday, more on Sunday, and they're hungover when they come into work on Monday. And so, however, nobody wants to admit they have an addiction. No one does. Not in the beginning, because it is soothing them. It is helping them to inability to empathize or the numbing. Those are protective devices. And so is the addiction. So. It's not right. However, this has been happening for years. These are some of the quick fixes to get through tough situations. Yeah, and I think I think that is a really important element here of this this wilderness cartography here. And as we're as we're mapping our response to trauma exposure, um, then we need to be really wary of quick fixes. Yes. And, and substances are an inherently quick fix. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and, and, you know, humor is important, maintaining a good sense of humor, but dark humor that's really putting up a wall between us is a quick fix mm-hmm. towards, towards numbing the pain of what we're experiencing um, and, and not experiencing mm-hmm. uh, that pain by, by choosing to do that. And so... You know, so much of what we've talked about so far has been this hard work that's needed of of really digging deep and really doing that that personal soul work. And we're going to get into that in the next episode um, of this podcast as we get into uh, our third section. Uh, if my if my numbers are correct in my head here, um, that's where we're really going to get into doing that internal work, and we're going to have uh, some some great conversations uh, around that because. Um, because yeah, we are. This is quick fix, mm-hmm. but the kind of things that we're talking about here are longer. This is opening the door that we don't know if we're going to be able to close it. That that yeah. sentiment she brought at the very beginning mm-hmm. of this chapter, um, and so her her sixteenth. Uh, warning sign of trauma exposure response is grandiosity, an inflated sense of importance related to one's work. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that cartoon. The, uh, the 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 first one or the couple out to dinner. Yeah. Must you precede everything you say with "This is your captain speaking"? That's you know that's good humor because yeah. it's a simple way to say how they're elevating themselves. Mm-hmm. Don't question me when again we might be getting projecting in there you're questioning me well i'm questioning myself but i don't want you to know that so how do we maintain our identity maintain structure maintain confidence when we are questioning and so we're going to go into different areas we're going to say I am all that and a side of fries or I have to work longer I have to work harder I have to do more and that comes back to some of the other 16 that we've already talked about but we lose sight so quickly on reality 
Yeah, I think uh, when we lose sense of, of reality, we really it, we struggle with putting first things first. Mm-hmm. And uh, she lifts up a quote from uh, Jenny McCarthy, who she describes as the foremother of the domestic violence movement in the United States, author of several revolutionary books on violence against women, who described the tension she encountered when balancing multiple identities. She said, there I was neglecting my own children while I was out trying to change the world. And, and I think that sense of grandiosity is... We begin to put so much value on ourselves that we begin to let all of these other things down that we said were important, mm-hmm. that we know are important, yes. that we and we still we still mm-hmm. hold. Uh, but you know that that element of minimizing it, it applies to the things and the people that we love, mm-hmm. and and that hurts. That hurts the people that we love. That hurts ourselves uh, to see that kind of thing uh, happen, and and so. You know, I've I've certainly seen this among among colleagues, and and I've seen this among myself, uh, amongst myself, amongst myself. I don't know. I don't know what the what the way I'm trying to say that for myself. You know, where my job as pastor is so important and so all consuming, and it has to be done that I'm letting my family down, and I'm not there for. Uh, for those that I love the most, and I think that I'm so indispensable. Mm-hmm. It's got to be me, and I'm you know I'm so grateful to be in a setting now where with Pastor Lauren here. I have someone else to say it doesn't have to be you. It can be me today. Take a day off, yes. and I can return the favor. Mm-hmm. And and that balance has been so incredibly important for us to maintain uh, in this in this work. And so I, I think that. Um, this we're, we're touching on a lot of these common themes of navigating the wilderness here, mm-hmm. of um, of the way that we need to have volition in this, the way that we need to uh, practice intentionality, and and I think these are getting into themes that she's really going to be lifting up as we get to the end of this book is the intentionality by which we approach this, because a lot of these warning signs are things that are happening without our volition, they're mm-hmm. happening without our 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 understanding or our knowledge or our consent. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did not want this to happen to me, and yet here I am. And so I'm, I'm curious, looking at all of these, we've got the 16, uh, it, and I, I noticed this uh, a little while ago in the front cover of the book. Mm-hmm. They're, all, they're all listed in a big circle, feeling helpless and hopeless, a sense that one can never do enough, hypervigilance, diminished creativity, inability to embrace complexity, minimizing chronic exhaustion slash physical ailments, Inability to listen slash deliberative avoidance, uh, dissociative moments, sense of persecution, guilt, fear, anger and cynicism, inability to empathize slash numbing, addictions, and grandiosity. That's a lot. It is. And so huge kudos to those that are listening to this podcast that have stuck with us through all of this. Because this really, I do think this is the meatiest section of this book where she's really trying to get into these are the things that you need to be looking out for in yourself. So for the sake of uh, of any podcast listeners, I hope that you uh, were able to break this up, enjoyed this on a couple different drives to work, or you've sat here and and rolled through this whole uh, delightful conversation with us. Um, But I'd like to kind of bring it all together and bring this back home. And and from your perspective and your your clinical background, I'm, I'm curious, what for you is the canary in the coal mine for these signs of trauma response? What clues you in uh, or helps you recognize this in your clients or in yourself that you're embodying trauma? Interestingly, it's easy to see it in our clients. Yeah. Very difficult to see it in ourself. And I think it, for me, <clears throat> what I've had to do is become very aware 
of how my colleagues or friends or family respond to me. If they are responding in a different manner, like, what is your problem? Or, uh, you seem really angry. Actually, holding on to that, and that's one of the hardest conversations we have with anyone. Tell me what you're seeing. Because we don't want to hear it. You know, if somebody's pointing a finger at you and saying, weren't you a little crusty today? Uh, okay. Yeah, maybe I am. Or never mind, I don't want to talk about it. We at some point have to acknowledge. So, yes, for me, just me, it's very easy to see in my clients. For me to see it in myself, most of the time I'm pretty good. Or I've got that one person who will look at me and go, um, excuse me, <laughs> you're different today. So having that trusted individual can can be there to to help you uh, with that. I, I love that because I, I think that you know that that really speaks to the work that you do. You are that trusted individual for others, and being able to have that trusted individual for yourself yes. is also is also really important. Who can call you on that and yes. love, and you can name that and love and help you map the wilderness for yourself there. Um, yeah, I shared with you, the, and I shared in the introduction to this uh, this show about a time when I was feeling exceptionally burnt out, and then I was really carrying uh, the trauma. You know, for me, the canary in the coal mine was my preaching, uh, because preaching is is probably the thing I love the most about uh, the work that I do. I just I love that opportunity, and so so much of my heart gets poured into that. And yes, I'm trying to preach to the congregation, but I also I'm human, and so I, a lot of my preaching is preaching to myself at times. And so that for me can be a sign. Um, and and going back and looking at my sermons, and and you know particularly from that period that I was referencing in the introduction, uh, I was referencing a time with a lot of grief. And yes. all of my sermons were about grief, mm-hmm. which was relevant to the community, but I should have seen something in that. And so I, you know, grateful for a colleague who could point that out to me yes. and say, hey, um, go back and listen to your sermons. Uh, one, because you need to hear it, because you're telling all these people that they're enough while you don't believe that for yourself. Um, and, and also, you're hurting. Mm-hmm. And and so it's been that's been something for me that I've tried to to say is I've got this ready made tool in my in my work where I can look at this system of of reflection every other week and see how I'm doing and check in and so whether it's you know something that you're doing intentionally in writing and reflecting and and if it's journaling or something mm-hmm. like that or if it's that trusted confidant who you know can call you out on it mm-hmm. in love when yes. you need that to be able to tell you I think that can be a really important part of these of these trauma uh, of understanding trauma response to have somebody who understands this as well who can who can be able to raise the flag for you and and say you might need to reflect a little bit mm-hmm. um you mentioned, you know, this the the clinical setting, and, and you talked about seeing this for your clients and seeing this for yourself. I think that kind of related to another question I wanted to ask about was the different lines and means of setting boundaries that you have around the different spaces uh, in your in your life. You've got relationships um, and and work that are built in a clinical setting, yes. where you have an office where you can say, "Don't worry, you can you can lay your trauma here." As because as a professional, we're going to leave it here, and I'm not going to carry it home with me because I'm leaving it right here in my office. 
Um, and that is really beneficial. But you're also a human mm-hmm. with family and friends and a church and all these different communities. So how do you handle that same kind of balance in your personal life without the clear-cut clinical boundaries? Oh, <clears throat> it's not easy. It's not easy. And the what I have had to do for me is remember the ethical piece that I can I am not to cause harm and if all of a sudden what I feel I need to talk about is any reflection of what I've experienced with a client or a coworker it's not for me to talk about and that's when I have to set that boundary for myself the other part is who am I reaching out to if I feel a little crusty myself going yeah I'm not sure what I'm doing and who I'm talking to about it that needs to be a boundary I need to come to my pastor uh, go to my own clinician go to a trusted mentor to be able to say help me process out what I'm doing and that's hard because you can't set the boundary unless you're willing to do the work in knowing what it is. So it all ties in together with all of these little nuances of recognizing, becoming aware, and validating yourself that you are feeling, and it's okay to feel everything you're feeling. Now we need to process it and make make sense of it. So... Now we've we've hopefully got folks that are they're listening to this that are engaging in this conversation with us um, that might be feeling I know I was as I read this feeling a little too seen yes uh, like ooh this is this is hitting the nail a little too close to being right on the head for me mm-hmm. um, and it can I I, I I think I made the comment to my wife as I was reading this book I said uh, I feel both super seen and super attacked. Yes. Because uh, this is naming hard truths about myself that I don't necessarily want to confront. Um, or bringing up hard truths that I've had to con- I've had to confront and I didn't want to at that time mm-hmm. either. It can be hard to hear these things and to recognize this in, in ourselves. And so where is the grace hmm. in this? Where, where do you see the grace in this hard work that's being asked of us as caring members of communities who also need to be mindful of the fact that we are perhaps the most susceptible to these trauma uh, to these trauma responses uh, in in bearing the secondhand trauma of, of others um, where is where's the grace for us and and I'm going to be very very careful here Alex as you and I have talked about already in this podcast of it's not a, if you don't face these, there's no grace for you. Mm-hmm. And there is not, oh, you get all the grace if you work this through and come out a better person. The grace is, we're not alone. The grace is, we are expected to have difficulties in our life. We're expected to have a mountain or a molehill in front of us. We're expected to live and breathe our lives. And if our authentic self is struggling, 
then the grace is, okay, let's get some help so you don't struggle alone. I appreciate that. And, and you know, hearing the people that you've talked about that you rely on, that you lean on, you, uh, it sounds to me like you're allowing those folks to share grace with you. Um, but because I think the, the heart of your work and the heart of, of compassionate work in general is sharing grace. Mm-hmm. It, I want to be, uh, I, you know, the prayer of St. Francis, I want to be an instrument of your peace. Um, and, and I want to be an instrument of grace. I want to share this with the world. And it's a cruel irony that I'm being hurt in the midst of only wanting to share grace. Mm-hmm. But there is a beauty in knowing that we're not alone mm-hmm. in that, that there is someone walking with us uh, in this wilderness. There is somebody who's who's charting this uh, along the way. And there's been a few of those things that... That, that came up here where we were, I think, acknowledging, like, that's, that's the grace, that's the care, that's the, the love that, that bubbles up, and it can, uh, it can be there. It is graceful to, uh, to recognize these and to do this work, um, and, and it, is, it is grace-centered to come back to the heart of, of who we are and to recognize that, no, we're not alone in this wilderness. There is someone who is with us um, navigating that wilderness as well. And so, as you know, as we as we talk about that, it, I think it, it hands off beautifully here to our uh, our reflection, our Bible study for this uh, particular conversation. Uh, wanted to to pair all of this, this again very dense text, with another um, short but brief text. This uh, comes from the Book of Luke, uh, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter four, verses one through fifteen. This is the temptation of Jesus. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you do not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. I love this story of Jesus in the wilderness. I particularly love this from Luke um, for a really small and weird reason. Uh, it's because it's got one of my favorite verses to take out of context. Uh, in here, I was uh, I saw a picture one time of a verse a day calendar, and uh, the verse of the day was Luke four seven. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Um, 
And it was, you know, the, the little meme note with it was, great verse, not as fun if you realize who said it, because that was Satan. Exactly. And so when you <laughs> rip that verse out of context, it's great. So that's that's just my little, uh, my, my little internal reason for why I love this. But, you know, when we're talking about wandering the wilderness, we've been talking a lot today about the deep personal work that's mm-hmm. that's needed to to map our response to trauma and um and and that doesn't come with easy answers no and i i love that in here in this story jesus wanders the wilderness and is not given and is given easy answers turn these rocks into bread you're hungry there's nothing inherently wrong with bread and Jesus, but Jesus says no, that he's not taking an easy way out, mm-hmm. that he's going to continue in this way in which he has been called. You know, there's the, um, he's been taken up to see the kingdoms of the world. And, and, and we, we talk about Jesus having glory and all authority rests on his shoulders. And so there's nothing inherently wrong with Jesus having authority all over, over all uh, of all creation. But he's not taking this in the easy way. And, yeah, he could have saved himself from being thrown off the pinnacle. He could have done something miraculous. And I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, with, with being saved through an incredible and exemplary divine power. But he said, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not taking this easy way out. Um, I, I will be thrown down in, in Jerusalem. And it's going to matter more that I fall. And, and so there's, there's so much more of this, of this work that comes from the heart here. Uh, because this really shows the heart of who Jesus is mm-hmm. in these temptations. That he isn't opting for the easy way out. Mm-hmm. That he's wanting, to do, he's wanting to do the hard work of following the call that God has given him. And, and and as we wander in the wilderness and as we are discerning the topography and the pitfalls and the and the warning signs that are that are all around us, um, that isn't that isn't easy. Christy, what does it mean to you to hear Jesus experiencing these kind of these kind of things here? Um, in the in the wilderness, um, and to and to see him face these kind of temptations, <clears throat> it makes it real. It makes it relatable. It makes it understandable, and it makes it tie in to so much when we ourselves hear a passage or study it or try to make sense of it. It's that. We could have read it every year through confirmation. We could have read it in our Bible study as a young adult. We can read it uh, or hear it as an adult later. But until we're ready to understand it, it doesn't really apply. So even as you are reading it and talking, I'm hearing things of grace for myself. The ability to know what my strengths and weaknesses are. The ability to... Here, that God has choices. I often laugh. You always have two choices. That's what I tell my clients. I told my child that early on. We do have two choices. 
And when we take care and responsibility for making that choice and sticking with it, then we have to own it. Mm. And if it turns out to be not a good choice, okay, there's the grace. And the grace we have to have for ourselves as well. So the modeling of what Jesus goes through in the wilderness and making choices and knowing there's grace. Yeah, I, I there's you know this feels like such a big divine cosmic battle and this 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 kind of thing it's it feels so so big but when you when you say it like that it's so human. Yes, I'm I'm just standing in the wilderness with two choices in front of me, mm-hmm. and I've got to make a choice. I've got to say this or that. That is so human, mm-hmm. and 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 to see to see God experience that alongside us. I, I think yeah, it is. That is important. That is profound. That is to say that you know, you know, tempted and tested in the same ways that we are by life. Yes. Um, not by some you know diabolical or sinister plan. This is just this is this is life. Mm-hmm. Feed yourself. Feed your family by some cheap shortcut, or by staying faithful in in this harder harder course. Um, you know, there's there's so much of uh, of this that I that I love because it does. It feels so grounded and so human, even though it is a, a grand conversation of cosmic significance. It is very, it is very real. It is very grounded, and um, and I think yeah, there is grace even more in in knowing we're not alone in that. Um, mm-hmm. That we we have one who is calling us back to our heart, calling us back to the very heart of ourselves as a beloved child of God, as a recipient of grace, as a, as a compassionate and merciful person, um, as a creation that was breathed into it, the breath of life by our creator and called good. Mm-hmm. Come back to that. Come back to who you are. Because I think these 16 warning signs that we've seen are all ways that we know we are straying from ourselves. This, we talked about getting over ourselves in this. This is coming back. We have, sometimes we've got to get over a hurdle that is us yes. to get back to the heart of who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, all of these things, one who provides bread, one who leads with authority, one who is, who is saved from death in Jerusalem. Like these, that's all Jesus. That's who he is. But he's getting over himself to make a harder choice mm-hmm. to live. And, and to be who he is here. And so each of us has that, that same kind of choice. So Just to add to that, sometimes we have to get out of our own way. Because we're creating the obstacles. We're creating the mess. And it can all be looked at, evaluated, and not undone. Because some of the choices can't be undone. However, if we get out of our way and we look at it differently, through a different lens, through a different angle, we can see. Now it's time for a new choice. Yeah. Well, as we were talking about this and planning for this episode, I talked about uh, liking to end with questions, but you asked if we could think, uh, lift up things that we could be curious about. Yes. Um, and, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that distinction. And so um, I have a couple curiosities to, to leave with folks um, for, uh, for this week. And, and one of them is to say what of these 16 warning signs 
are, are you curious about? What do you want to learn more about? Because uh, I think there's a difference there in, in, in sure. I feel attacked by this one, and mm-hmm. and I and uh, and like, oh, that's me. End of story. I'm done. I'm a failure. <clears throat> Look at me. I suck. That's not the point. Mm-mm. I I, I want to invite that curiosity into yes. into one of these to say, huh? I want to learn more about minimizing. What is uh? That resonated a little bit. I want to learn more. I want to sit with that, or I want to walk with that, or I want to ask about that. Yes. So I think for me, what of these sixteen has inspired that curiosity and let that um, that bubble up to the to the surface? Um, if people are having these conversations and discussion groups, uh, be ready to get to get deeper. This is this is a harder one. This work of self reflection here um, is is difficult. My other curiosity is who is in the wilderness with you? Who is a trusted voice in the wilderness? Um, and 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 I want you to be to be curious about the people that are around you, mm-hmm. and and to to think about the relationships that you have and the conversations that you've been you've been having um, because I think those are um, are going to be uh, important to important to reflect on. We both share the importance of those kind of people in our life. Um, and from a perspective of our of our story for the day, I'm curious. I, I, I want to invite curiosity around the um, around the shortcuts that are available to you at the moment, uh, around the choices that you are in the midst of. Uh, what are the paths in front of you, and and what and and what are you considering as as you're doing that? I want you to be curious about the the choices that are there. Do you have any curiosities that you'd like to, to lift up for uh, for folks? Um, not what I would lift up for folks. I've got my own I've got to work through. <laughs> um, but I think the curiosity is when we are curious, follow it. Lean into it. Um, I wanted to add a piece to who is in the wilderness with you. If in your reflection you see somebody who's not there go find them because that's your inner calling of who you need and who you want and so the curiosities are going to keep coming up and they're going to keep happening as we contemplate this further and further in a group and what somebody else brings up and what something is being said or the elephant in the room, what doesn't get spoken. And be curious of what what it holds for you or what you immediately reject. And I think that's the piece of the two choices we have, accept or reject. And all of it is okay. We've got to come to our own answers or mm, gifts as they're presented to us. Thank you. Thank you for that perspective. Thank you for the conversation today. Um, I, I think this is probably going to be, this is the meteor section of the book, and mm. it's going to be one of the, the denser, probably longer episodes that we that we have uh, here in this study. And so I appreciate you bringing 
uh, your willingness to engage to this conversation. Uh, for those that are that are listening, I'd like to encourage you to discuss these questions that are these uh, these curiosities with a conversation partner. Uh, and whatever you're comfortable sharing, you're invited to share your reflections in the comments section of our Muhlenberg Lutheran Facebook page, our Instagram, uh, which can be found at Muhlenberg LC, or on YouTube. So thank you for gathering with us today around the Wellspring. We're looking forward to another episode next week. You can learn more about our congregation online by joining us for worship each Sunday at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time with the 11 o'clock service streamed live on Facebook and YouTube. Your financial support for the ministry of Muhlenberg makes the many ministries, including digital ones like this, possible for our community. You can make your gifts online at www.muhlenberglutheran.org. I'm Pastor Alex Zuber, joined today by Christy Trumbo. Thank you for your presence here. I'm so glad we could be together today. I pray that God's grace has bubbled up to meet you wherever you are. Now, go in peace to live out Christ's love.